0: Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. All right, let me see if you can finish this statement for me. I'll put it up on the screen. We are most like Jesus when we... See, you guys are great. I'm, I'm, I really am glad that you knew that. Otherwise... This was going to be a different message entirely, right? No, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that you hear this and you know this. This is in the cultural water of our church. We believe this is really very important for us as a church to understand this. If you didn't have a lot to go on and if you just were watching Christians, watching church people, you could probably put a lot of different things in the blank. It's like Mad Libs and, and you could turn out with some funny statements. Uh, you might say we're most like Jesus when we try really hard to not cuss because Christians, church people try really hard to not cuss, but I don't think that quite captures the spirit of Christ likeness. Uh, we could watch, though, see people and, and church people and what they do and what they prioritize, and we might say, attend. We're most like Jesus when we attend because church people like to attend church. They go on Sundays, they go to their life group, kids go to kids ministry things. They're very active and involved and so we might say that or we might say uh, we're most like Jesus when we Uh, have a quiet time because church people love to talk about quiet times and are you doing one and what's yours like and what time of the day do you do it And what are you journaling what are you reading do you do quiet time in the quiet or do you do quiet time with music and then it's music time not quiet time so there's lots of things that we could put in the blank and all of them would scratch it some itches in our life as to what it means to walk with Christ and what it takes but I'm glad that you see this and and I hope that it's very present That we are most like Jesus when we serve. It's a deeply held belief of our church and it's a, a very strong part of our church culture. I hope that you know that. And the reason is because we see Jesus talk about himself in this way. When Jesus came to earth and had an earthly ministry, he came to seek and save the lost. And one of the the core statements he made about himself about his character, about his work, and about his ministry, defined the way he went seeking and saving the lost. In Mark 10, 45, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, This is what I do. I, who am the King of the universe, I, who am the eternal God, who who through me all things were made, I came to serve humanity. And not long after that, in the upper room, that moment where Jesus, knowing that all things were in his hand, he kneeled down and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He made a point to them. In Luke 22, Jesus said to his disciples, The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And then he answers the question. He says, But I. I am among you as the one who serves you, right? As important as participating and gathering and assembling is to church life, as important as reading your Bible and praying is, we should know the Word of God. We should love the Word of God. We should know God by it. Any one of those things doesn't make us distinctly like Jesus. It's not what what makes us most like Him. But when we watch Jesus in action, when we see Jesus at work, what we find is Jesus serving. So we are most like Jesus when we serve selfless sacrifice if you read the gospels it defined every bit of the mission of Jesus Christ on earth laying aside his rights and privileges to serve and meet the needs of others that's why I'm most like him when I do the same thing what instead of of you know focusing on what I need first I lay that aside and I focus on what others Need in fact, really understanding the heart of Jesus, really experiencing the heart of Jesus begins when we do that. I think it's all in theory until we come to a place where we begin to set our priorities and our rights aside, and we begin to put others as more important than ourselves. So it's no surprise the word in the Bible, diakonos, which means uh, servant. It means one who serves. It's found 29 times in the New Testament. And when you look at the words related to it that stem from it, like diakonia or diakone, both relating to church people serving people, how church people serve people, we find it over 100 times there. And it grows and swells to become like the dominant theme of the New Testament. Bottom line, church people are serving people because church people are people who are being made like Christ. At least if someone's growing in Christ-likeness, you should then see it in their humble service to other people all the time. That should be characteristic of their life. We're most like Jesus when we, when we serve. I want you to understand something as we move back into the pastoral epistles, but I want to start in Acts 6 today. So grab your Bible and turn in your New Testament to Acts chapter 6. Um, before we get back to 1 Timothy 3, I want you to see what is kind of like the, the prototype for the role that we'll see in First Timothy three, the role called deacon or, or diaconus. And here in Acts, as you're finding Acts chapter six, let me give you kind of a rundown of what's been happening. In Acts one, Jesus meets with his disciples after his resurrection he tells them that the Holy Spirit will come and give them power and they will be his witnesses, really meaning they will demonstrate and they will proclaim the truth about Jesus everywhere they go to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers and dwells the life of each and every believer. In Acts 2, Peter preaches his first sermon and he grabs a knife and he stabs people in the heart. Wait, hang on. Let me look at that again. No, he preached a clear gospel, and when they heard it, they were pierced to the heart. I read that totally wrong before the service. They were pierced to the heart, which means it really cut them deep. They understood they, understood they had a deep need for Jesus Christ in their life. They had a deep need to cling to Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation, and to experience abundant life. And it says in Acts 2, that day there were added about 3,000 souls to the church. And I can remember preaching my very first sermon at a church in Abilene in 2000, and 3,000 people were not saved that day. And and so I'm impressed by this. Acts 4 is just after Peter preaches his second sermon, and we have a note that says at that point the number of believing men came to be about 5,000. And notice in Acts 2, it says souls, men, women, boys, and girls were added to the church by faith in Jesus. By the time that Peter gets done with his second sermon, they've counted just the men, and the men are 5,000. So this is a massively growing movement. People who are coming to the end of solving their own problems and clinging tightly to Jesus Christ for life and salvation. And we get to Acts 6, and you've got that now in your Bible open, and it says at this time, While the disciples were increasing, and that's not a small increase, they're massively growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, which means they're Jewish, but they're Greek by cultural heritage, by descent, by bloodline. So a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Why? Well, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food, there's a lot happening in, in one verse. One, there's a food problem. And two, there's a, a racial problem happening already in the earliest days of the church. One group seems to be prioritized over the other group when it comes to getting your basic needs met simply because of their ethnic or cultural background. Now, there are a number of factors that are issues when I look at just that Acts 6 verse 1. One it may be that this was actually happening, that there was a race and culture issue happening that was dividing the church, but it seems to me that no one was believing the best about each other. They were assuming the worst about each other, and no one was fighting for, for God's best in their church, but instead they began to backbite and infight and complain and grumble. No one seemed, from the way it reads, to have already gone to the apostles and said, hey, We see an issue starting to butt up in our church, and we don't know what to do, or would you help us, or do you see how this is hurting people, but instead, they just immediately turn to grumbling, and to complaining, and to fighting, and I want you to understand something here, because I don't want you to have in mind, well, church people were always just nasty, I mean, we do struggle, yes, But there's something even deeper going on here. If you read through Acts, what you find in Acts 4 is that Satan begins attacking the church from its earliest days. In Acts 4, Satan attacks the church through a persecuting government. Peter and John are arrested, and they're hauled in before the Sanhedrin, and they are accused of what? Of preaching Jesus, right? Of healing someone and talking about Jesus Christ. And they say, you better stop it. And they go, well, we don't know if it's right to stop or not. I mean, we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. And they go, well, you better stop it. And then they let them go. But there's a persecuting government uh, that is a, a scheme of Satan to undermine and defeat the church in Acts 4. In Acts 5... There's greed and hypocrisy. A man named Ananias who was a a leader in the early church and his wife Sapphira, they sold land and while everyone was giving what they had to the pot to meet the needs of all, they kept money to themselves and they pretended like they had done the right thing and, and hid that they had done the wrong thing and they were called out for it. So Satan's attacking the church through greed and hypocrisy. And then Acts 6, this is another attack. It's a spiritual attack. It's not just a food problem. It's not just a a race or an injustice problem, it's a spiritual problem. They, as soon as they come up against any difficulty, and life is full of difficulty, right? As soon as they come up against something that isn't sunshine and rainbows, they begin complaining and infighting and backbiting and arguing and grumbling about it. This is an attack of Satan against the church. And if it's not dealt with, of all of three of those attacks, I think this is the worst of them. It's the scariest, it's the most dangerous of them, that the church would, would turn against itself, that we would let ourselves be divided by anything, and that we would turn to grumbling and to fighting within, within ourselves and just let the thing, whole, whole thing fall down on itself. If This isn't dealt with, that's what's going to happen with the church. The church is just going to fold over on itself and not continue into the future. So what do the apostles do? What are they going to do to solve the problem? Warren Wiersbe said the apostles handled the problem with great wisdom. Here's why. They did not give Satan any foothold in the fellowship. They recognized that there was a deep spiritual issue going on in this moment. It's not just about Hellenistic Jews and and native Jews. There is a deep spiritual attack happening in the church. And so what do they practically do to meet that need? Well, they select some men. And they they select these men and they give them a job. And their job is to, number one, to serve food. Make sure everyone has the need, gets what they, they need. They're serving the food problem. They're meeting the physical problem. But it wasn't just that. These men were selected and they weren't just serving food. They were serving justice. They were meeting a sociological problem. They were bringing equity into their community, making sure everyone was treated with dignity and honor and were unified in Christ. But it wasn't just about food and it wasn't just about sociology. There's a spiritual issue under it all. And so these were selected to model Christ-likeness for the community, to be servants, to be Table waiters, the word diaconus literally means to serve. It carries with it or conveys with it the idea of of being an attendant to someone else. And I want you to notice here the charge the apostles give to the congregation in the selection of these who would meet this need. In verse 3, They say, select from among you seven men of good reputation who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom who we may put in charge of this task. And I read that, and the way I read it is, select some people who have excellent leadership qualities that we may put them in the place of solving the problems, And what would happen in most communities, what would probably happen today, is that these seven with incredible leadership gifts and abilities would begin to make rules and regulations. They would begin to decree things. They might make it a political position and begin to create public policy that's then enforced within the church to make sure that there is equity and that there are physical needs met and that people don't forget where they came from. But instead... The apostles say, choose seven who have incredible leadership qualities. And they're going to take their incredible leadership qualities and instead of leading from the top, we're going to invert it and they're going to lead from the bottom. They're going to model Christ-like, humble, selfless service, meeting the needs of others. Because what that does is it invites the power of Jesus to reign in them. Instead of them reigning in them best of their ability reigning in the church they're laying it all down at the foot of the cross and Jesus now may reign in them and through them and in the church and for the church and it's these seven being most like Jesus when they serve that recalls the church's minds and their hearts and their lives to the suffering servant Jesus who came to give down his life that others may have life, who set aside his rights and his privileges and his honor that he might lift up those of us who lay broken in a heap. And that's what makes it to me so ironic and so sad that the spectrum of church history shows how prone church people are, how prone we are to get so much of this stuff wrong so much of the time because the word diaconess, deacon, has been used in so many churches to mean power. Or control, or to be a, a thing of abuse, or to really be a political position that people would aspire to achieve or to gain for themselves. And all of that is so far away from the heart and the mind and the spirit and the example of Jesus Christ. And so far away from the, the example that we have here in the early church for what this role was established to do for the church. And the reason I start here with kind of a long introduction to our text is because that's the next thing we're going to look at in the pastoral epistles is the role of deacon. Last week we looked at the role of elder, and we'll pick up in the very next verse, 1 Timothy 3, if you want to flip there in your Bible. We'll start in verse 8 today, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And just as a reminder, what we found in First and Second Timothy and Titus is kind of like the first how-to manual on how to church on how to function and how to be a church, and we've learned some lessons. We've learned that all of us need to be all in, that every Christian here is deeply needed for us to thrive and to glorify Christ as a church. You're needed. You're important here. We learned that every Christian is to, with their life, their conduct, their lips, their lives, their service, they're to be faithful examples of Jesus Christ so that when people look at you, when people look at me, what they see is a faithful depiction, a stamp, if you remember that image, a faithful picture of what Jesus looks like. When the people outside the church would look at us, they would say, that's what church is supposed to be about? I didn't know that. They could fill the blank in and it would say, like Jesus, like Jesus. That's what the church is supposed to be like, that we're to be faithful examples so that people would know what it really means to be saved. And then last week, we learned that, that God has a plan for how churches are led, and we learned this phrase, elders are given to the church to guide and to guard the doctrine and the direction of the church, and that's a, a I mean, very sober responsibility, and so there's a very high standard set for those who aspire to be elders for the church, and while it's true that every Christian, every single Christian, from the moment that you trust Christ for life and salvation, is called to lay down your life for his glory and for the sake of others, every one of us is called to servant leadership. What we find in 1 Timothy 3 is that some are appointed as elders to guide and to guard the doctrine and direction of the church, and some are appointed as deacons, as diaconists, to lay down their lives and to model humble service to meet the practical needs of the church and that's what we see in first timothy chapter three we want to see what it tells us about deacons and, and what it means to be a deacon and what qualifications you must have if you're going to be a servant leader so look at verse 8 deacons likewise last time we were talking about elders deacons likewise must be men of dignity and this refers to character over competence this is why in Acts 6 When the apostles told the church, select some people, they didn't just say people who speak really well or who are the most administrative-minded people, but they said they got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They got to be wise because above skills, above abilities, character, what is their spiritual condition is the concern of a servant leader. These deacons are to be people of integrity who take their integrity very seriously And the next few verses show us what it looks like to take your integrity very seriously. The next phrase says they should not be double-tongued, which means sincerity, that they shouldn't be duplicitous, that they shouldn't say one thing to you but go over here and and say a totally different thing to you about what's right or what's true or what should be done, that they are, in some ways, they're respected because they're credible. They're credible because they're truthful. They're not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. And in either case, it means that alcohol or money doesn't have an inappropriate hold on their mind, on their heart, on their motives, or on their behavior. That it has its proper place, and that's not in a controlling place in their life. Verse 9 says, deacons should be holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, that, that individuals who would be servant leaders... Their spiritual life should hold integrity, not just their outward manners where you can see them and I can see them, but their heart and their inner life, which the Lord is watching and sees, would hold integrity, that they would hold to faith with great integrity. And then I want to compare something in verse 6 we looked at last week, that elders should not be a new convert. It doesn't say that here. Verse 10 simply says, a deacon must first be tested And then let them serve as a deacon if they are beyond reproach. So the omission is clear. Elders cannot be new converts. And it told us why last week. Because it's easy when you're in leadership and making decisions and guiding people to buy too much into your own hype. And so you should have time to grow up and time to mature and to learn that no matter where you are, you're really nothing. And we all are dependent in every way for everything on God in Christ. But for deacons, it's not so. There's an omission here. It doesn't say you can't be a, non- a new convert. You can be a new believer, but it says your life should be looked at. You should see, is there integrity with this person's intentions and their, their actions? It reminds me of chapter 4, verse 16 that we looked at a few weeks ago that said, You should watch your life and your doctrine closely. You should watch over these things. Persevere in them, for by them you will be saved, and so will your hearers. Remember that? So for a deacon, it says simply that, that their life should be looked at, and if they're seen as above reproach, then they can serve as a deacon. Verse 11 says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now the record of church history is split on verse 11 and there have been many churches and maybe this is your background in which they read this verse to imply deacons' wives. It said deacons' wives must be likewise and, and dignified. I've been a part of, of a church like that before. I don't believe that's what it's saying at all. I read it straightforward. It says women must also be dignified. I think it means women who would be deacons or deacon candidates And the biggest factor for my belief on this is comparing the list of deacons and elders in chapter 3. Here, it specifically said women must be this way. If it read deacons' wives, I'm curious why Paul wouldn't include a similar statement to the elders' wives. Why would he hold deacons' wives to a standard that he wouldn't hold, or deacons' wives to a standard that he wouldn't hold elders' wives to? That would seem ridiculous. And it's not like we're reading one letter to Timothy and one letter to Titus here. It's not like we're talking about chapter one and chapter five here. We're talking about in the same long run on sentence. He says elders, this and this and this, deacons, this and this and this, and because there's no, no, there's an omission in the first, it makes it clear to me that he's not talking about deacons' wives, he's talking about women who would serve as deacons, and I think a lot of churches have gotten this wrong for a lot of years, I've been a part of, of those churches. I don't think this is the only place the New Testament declares that women should be deacons or shows that women should be deacons. We have at least one clear example in Romans of a woman who was a deacon, and it seems very, like, incredibly ordinary uh, that she was a deacon. It's Phoebe of Rome in in Romans 16. Paul describes her this way. He says, our sister Phoebe, who is a, the word's diaconess, who's a deacon, Who's a deacon of the church at Centuria? That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't give a lot of explanation. He didn't seem to have to justify why he's called her a deacon. He just says, like it's, it's not odd at all to him. He goes, I want you to receive Phoebe. She's a deacon in Centuria. She's doing a great job being a deacon. You should treat her with a lot of respect and give her all the help that she needs. No explanation needed. Right? So I really believe that this is a case where we see that that women in the early church, it was normative for for them to be deacons. No one's questioning that. When we look at our passage today, we find in 8, there's the male pronoun. It says men of dignity. And then you get to verse 11. It says women of dignity dignity, that both are included when it comes to this role of deacon. And it says that they ought to meet these character requirements. They should be dignified. They should not be malicious gossips. They should be temperate, which means sober-minded, and they should be faithful, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must also be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. We talked about this last week. We, we looked at the Woost translation that suggested that this phrase here, husbands of only one wife, should read something like a one-woman sort of man. And why? I won't go deep into this because we spent a lot of time on it last week, but why would it be important for a Christian leader who is married to be faithful and to be fully committed in their marriage? Well, it's because the Bible declares over and over again That God designed marriage between a husband and wife to say something about the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church. That marriage in its faithfulness is meant to declare how Jesus loved the church to death literally and how the church must cling to Jesus and trust him fully And so when a husband and a wife have complete fidelity in their marriage, they declare a true and faithful gospel to the world around them. But when a husband and a wife do not have faithfulness, full faithfulness in their marriage, they declare a false gospel to the people who watch them live out their life as a married couple. They ruin their testimony, often ruin their ministry, and often leave a whole wake of hurts behind them that they don't even acknowledge. And so paul says if someone aspires to be a deacon and they're married they should have complete faithfulness in that marriage if they have children they should have complete faithfulness in the way that they seek to disciple their children can we control our our children can we make them make the right decisions absolutely not but can we control our intent and our effort to be faithful in our marriage and our parenting absolutely yes and we must why because if we're not doing it at home we're not gonna do it here. If I'm not making it my aim to serve my family, to lay aside my needs, to lay aside my wants and my rights, what I think are my rights and privileges, to hold up those who live in my home, how on earth am I gonna come here and do that for the rest of the church? I won't. And so it's a proving ground. Now, I've experienced uh, churches getting this qualification wrong, and probably you have two somewhere along the way. In fact, my home church, which was a, f- a phenomenal church, like I will throw no shade on, on my home church in Desoto, but but <laughs> there's a but but there's an instance that has always stuck with me and bothered me, where they got this qualification wrong. Robert was the church maintenance man and building supervisor. I worked for Robert for three years in high school. It was not a, uh, an exciting job. It was a hard job. It was a dirty job. But I will, and that's not a very good commercial, but I'll tell you, if you're feeling called to ministry, I will always, always recommend your first ministry role be somewhere in building supervision or maintenance. I, I mean that with all of my heart. It teaches you a lot about Christ-likeness. It teaches you a lot about people and about the church. So I recommend that strongly. Here's Robert. Robert was the building maintenance man and supervisor. He was in his 60s. I worked for him when I was a teenager. Robert in his early 20s had a failed marriage. And this is not, you know, throwing any shade at him or anything, but we know all divorce happens because of brokenness in marriage and humanity. It's not his fault or her fault, it's sin that reigns in us that causes what God designed to fall apart. And this happened to Robert in his early 20s. Later. He came to faith in Jesus. Later, he came to experience forgiveness and freedom in Christ. He repented. He began to walk new life in Christ. As a part of new life, he became an active member of a church. He met and married Barbara. He was deeply faithful to Barbara. He loved her. Their marriage exemplified the gospel. I loved watching them in the way they modeled marriage. For me as a young man and for our our church, he was selfless. He was humble in character. He was always, I mean, not just on the clock, at all times meeting needs of other people in our church and in our community. But because of failed marriage years in his past, what was withheld to him forever in that church was the opportunity to serve the church as an official deacon in the church. And I think that was a mistake. I think it's a travesty. I thought it was ridiculous when I was 16 years old. And I think it's even more ridiculous now when I read the pastoral epistles. And what I find Paul writing to Titus and to Timothy over and over again is, may your life flow out of sound doctrine your personal life and your ministry and your corporate life may it flow out of sound doctrine which is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is the gospel the gospel is the thing that calls us out of dependence on ourself it's the thing that calls us out of sin it shows us what sin is it says, don't go that way anymore. The gospel is the thing that invites us into new life and guides us along new life in Christ. It's not a thing that goes back and judges us for our past. So why in this man's life was he penalized in the present and the future for sins long forgiven by Jesus Christ? I think it was not consistent with a life that flows out of sound doctrine, that that was withheld from him. I don't think, and I'm just, this is church business here. Those of you who are new to church, you're like, what on earth? But those of you who have been around, you're going, oh, I get the gravity of this moment. That the way that we serve, the way that we organize, the way that we go forward must be rooted and flow out of the gospel And this qualification doesn't have to do with were you once married and then it fell apart and are you married now. It has to do with are you expressing fidelity and faithfulness as you cling to your spouse, as you cling to Christ. If so, then you may be able to be a deacon. Sorry, that's Robert, and I've got a rant because it still bothers me today, but I hope it's an edifying rant. Uh, if Verse 12 says, if married, deacons must demonstrate fidelity. If they have children, they must demonstrate a commitment to disciple-making in their home, and then verse 13. This kind of turns, now, what does it look like when one has served like Christ, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And I see here two results, two things that happen when a person who is committed to Jesus begins to really live and serve in a Christ-like manner, a Christ-like way. One of those things is, he calls it a high standing That that their ministry will be received by others and will be appreciated. And it makes me think of, of how we're encouraged to live in such a way that people will be blessed and thank God, right? That if you serve like Jesus, your ministry will be received and people will thank the Lord. They will glorify the Lord for your service. And the second thing he says is that you will experience great confidence. If you are committed to laying down your privileges and your rights, And serving in a Christ-like, humble way, you will build great confidence. The word means boldness. What it means is this. If we are most like Jesus when we serve, that's only theory until you actually begin to serve. And when you begin to serve like Jesus in a selfless, sacrificial way for the sake of Christ and for the good of others, you'll finally get it. You'll soulfully get it. You will realize in that moment that you are tasting what you were made for and it will taste good to you. Not just to you, not only will it be soul satisfying and good for you, but it's good for the church. It will create in you a a greater sense of confidence in the things of God, confidence in, in faith in Christ and confidence in your identity in Christ. In other words, if I'm most like Jesus when I serve, that's when I serve, that's when I really get it. And I won't really get it. I won't really have a great understanding of, of Jesus, the heart of Christ, until I begin to experience it in, in mimicking him and modeling him in my church. And that's true for every Christian. We're most like Jesus when we serve. It's true for those who are formally given role and responsibility in the church And when we do this, when every one of us model ourselves after Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life, to give his life away as a ransom for many, then we begin to see the purpose that we were designed for. As a church, deacons, those who serve, aren't, aren't just to fill roles, we're to use our roles. And when we do, it blesses the heck out of the church. It satisfies our souls. It glorifies God. And if you look back at Acts 6, it also is a, an incredible defensive measure against the schemes of the devil to undermine and defeat and destroy the church. We're most like Jesus when we serve, and there's a power in a beauty. It's, it's so simple and so profound that serving is the way that God would bring redemption and beauty into the world, and the way that he would recall and remind people to the simplicity of depending on the suffering servant Savior to have life. And what a simple and powerful way to protect the church as it moves into the future. I want to give you four things, and these things are from me. They're not in the text, but four things in response to the text that you can do when it comes to thinking about uh, people who serve as servant leaders and, and your role and responsibility in that. There's four things you can do in response to this text. One thing you can do is pray. You can pray for servant leaders. You can pray for them. Pray for their welfare. Pray that their ministry would be fruitful that they would have soul-satisfying experiences as they serve like Christ, that the church would be blessed because they have served like Christ. You want to know who the the servant leaders are? I mean, it's every Christian who decides to lay their life down for the sake and the needs of others. But in our church, you could think of your life group leaders, you could think of the youth and, and kids volunteers, you could think of the Matt team, the mission action team, the worship team, the tech team, the Connect team, the finance team, the leadership team, all of those who we've given responsibility and said, Would you steward this responsibility, which is more than just, you know, stewarding the money or the building or something like that? It's stewarding the manifold grace of God, is what Peter says pray for these servant leaders as they lead pray that it would be a joyful and redeeming effort that they have pray for them second thing that you can do you can pray for them and you can support servant leaders here's how you support servant leaders you support servant leaders by being all in if you don't hold specific responsibility if you have just the christian responsibility which is laying down your life for others But if someone else has responsibility over an area that you are blessed by, be all in. If it's your life group leader and they are planning something for the life group, be there. If it's a kids ministry or a student ministry activity, sign your kids up and have them there so that we can all celebrate what God is doing in and through the church If you're giving today in the plate, give generously so that those who steward the finances have a ton to work with, and they're just like laughing. Oh, look at all the great things that we can do for the kingdom of God because the church has been so generous. That's how you support servant leaders. So pray for servant leaders. Support servant leaders. How about this one? Encourage servant leaders. And we live in in such a day of criticism and, and division and hate like, encouragement and, and kindness is just not on the plate of our agenda. I would encourage you, church, we need to be better encouragers. How, how much better? Much better, <laughs> if you want to put a number to it. We need to be much better at encouraging one another and encouraging people. Our world is desperate for just a little bit of kindness. And this is so simple. You can practice it this week. You pick a number, 5 or 10 or 20. I don't care how many you you choose, this week, write five notes of encouragement to somebody. The people in in our church who are serving and leading, send them a text, send them an email, write them, I mean old school, write them a letter, put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. I got one this week from a family in the church because of a, a loss that we experienced as a family and when I opened that, I can't tell you what a blessing it was to my life. It was one little line just saying we're with you and praying for you as you experience this grief. What an amazing blessing it was to me on a day where the world was stripping and draining life from me to have a kind word sent to me. So encourage servant leaders. It's something that you can do that's so simple. Last one is be a servant leader. Whether that is an official capacity where you say, I'm ready to step up and take more responsibility here. Put me in the game, coach. Or if it's simply realizing as a Christian, it is our way. we lay down our rights we lay down our privileges and we seek to meet the needs of others be a servant leader as you do this text has told us you will gain a greater understanding of the heart of Jesus Christ you will grow in satisfaction in your spiritual life because you are living in the way that you were made to to live on this earth and it absolutely will lead to fruit in our church Can I pray for us God, it's a nuts and bolts kind of message today from your word. When we come through this passage, it's just the basics of how we are to live, but they're basics that we've set on the back burner in favor of hierarchy, in favor of, of policy, and, in favor of product. At the heart of who we are as a people broken and saved by a suffering servant, who's the king of the universe, but Philippians 2 tells us he emptied himself. He laid it all down, even his life that we might have life in him. Our job is to grow in Christ likeness. Would you, Lord, help us to have hearts and minds that reflect your son? Because of the beauty, because of the power, because of the joy, that's found in his life. Spirit, would you help us to take on Christ likeness? Would you grow humility in our lives? Grow and stir in us a desire and affection for serving. And as we do, Lord, would you give us satisfaction in it? Would you help it to spread? Would it be clear to our community as they look in on Legacy Church that we're most like Jesus when we serve? I pray that would be a good reflection on your reputation. It would be a powerful reflection on your reputation that could lead to transformation in our community that we wouldn't be known by our style, our genre, our politics, that we wouldn't be known by our, our entanglements, but we'd be known by our humility and service. And like the seven selected in Acts 6, that we would lay all of the qualities that you've given us down to be table waiters. And you would use that in a powerful way to bring redemption. In Jesus' name.